Well, welcome to our second podcast on how to read our Bible. This is Joseph. I'm with Tim, and we also have a very special guest today, Matt Swan. It's actually Doctor Matt. Oh, Swan. Oh, that's right, Doctor. Come on, man. And, and I'm sorry. That's eight years in the work. Call me Doctor. Holy smokes! <laughs> and he's the kind of doctor who can help people. Yeah, because he's a medical doctor. That's right. Not like someone with a PhD. I'm supposed to be. <laughs> well, we're really excited. We're, we're following up on our session that Tim did on the doctrine of scripture. And uh, we're really grateful that that Matt is here because um, he is someone who is struggling or wrestling with uh, some of the doctrines of scripture regarding things like inerrancy, infallibility. How do we have the 66 books in the Bible that we do? Is that a legitimate process? And and we know that both for Tim and me, that that is something we have um, each struggled with and have tried to work through and still are working through. And, and we know that that is true for people in our congregation as well. And so this is a really meaningful podcast to press in deeply in these issues with someone who is considering them very thoughtfully. And so, Matt, I kind of just wanted to open it up to you just to share a little bit about your experience with uh, this issue and also just some of the questions you have about the Bible that we have today in our hands. So, yeah, and I appreciate that. I was raised as a Southern Baptist missionary kid, actually, so my parents were, were Southern Baptist. And part of that is the acceptance of the Baptist faith and message, which states that the Bible is totally free of error and is divinely inspired, you know, scripture therefore can contain no mistakes. And this idea that everything in the Bible can be explained if you just look hard enough into it. And so, you know, at several places there seem to be contradicting numbers or, you know, it would be Jesus walked up to a city and then, you know, walking down to the same city and they say, oh, well, that's just because it's a perspective. And and so I, as I progressed through my faith, one of the things that I began to realize was just my take on the Bible just really didn't support that idea that there was absolutely no mistakes. And, and I really struggled with that because it actually made me wonder, well, you know, do I actually have a Christian faith? Can I believe this? If, you know, the Bible is my source of authority and I question that authority, then, you know, am I believing in the right thing? And so that's when I really kind of began to dig into all this. And it's been an ongoing process. I mean, you know, I made a conversion prayer when I think I was nine. And then, you know, probably at the end of high school when I was 18 is when I really began to kind of struggle with these issues and kind of realize that I just can't continue to embrace it um, without questioning it. And so that was kind of when I began to struggle with, you know, in the infallibility versus the inerrancy of the Bible, which for me, those are two difficult words because there's a different meaning in biblical sense as well as in the literal sense, you know. But for me, the idea of infallibility, meaning the message presented through the Bible is consistent. Um, it delivers. It does not fail to deliver the same message. So when you take a look at the Bible, is it consistently pushing the same concept, the same ideas, and telling you, re- revealing the same Christ figure through it? Which the New Testament, absolutely. The Old Testament, that could be up for debate in my mind. I feel like the New Testament God is pretty consistent, whereas the Old Testament God kind of flip-flops between a God who wants the best for his people and a God who is, you know, out to do the most harm that he can at some point in time. That would be infallibility, but then there's inerrancy, which means does it contain mistakes? Are there errors in it, or is it free from error? So inerrancy would be, if it's inerrant, it would mean that it's completely free from error. And I 
don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, I believe it contains errors, be they, you know, simple numerical errors or, you know, grammatical errors or contextual errors, um, but I believe they're in there. And yet the tradition that I was raised in, the Southern Baptists, accept a completely inerrant Scripture. And that was one of my biggest struggles was kind of coming to that piece. Well, I think one thing that's important is uh, this is like a very common struggle within Christians in the church today. And so a part of having Matt on is just to say, hey, this is, like we should talk about this. Like this, these should be questions on the table, especially given, you know, we just know, we know more from an archaeology standpoint, from a, you know, science, I think, speaks into this to, to a great degree. And for the church is not to like sort of say, well, we believe in inerrancy, deal with it, right? Like that's, that's not the best way to <laughs> approach that. And so one is we just want to, we want to open up a space for honest questions because we know a lot of people who are listening to this have those questions as well as I think early on in ministry, these were really significant questions for me as well. And I think, I don't know if it was the same time the Da Vinci Code came out and Tom Hanks and his hair on in the movie, which I know like <laughs> I'm the last person that should judge anyone for hair, but I mean, that was like, that wig was just, it was an abomination. It was terrible. <laughs> Was it was it just obvious. It was like I a, mean, if it was his it was real horrible. hair and he grew it out the way it was anyway. Uh, but the Da Vinci Code, I mean, that's a lot of. I mean, that that got more a little bit to canonicity maybe than inerrancy, but inerrancy was a part of it. And and I think these are these are like real real questions. And to to just sort of say to dismiss them or not talk about them in an honest way, I think's um, a mistake. And so that's why even while we're having Matt on is is while and and I think probably it's worth being clear like our doctrinal statement EFCA affirms inerrancy, and that's where, where I would be. But there are a lot of questions that come into that, and it, it should lead to an honest wrestling for any Christian. Which I think is a great point, too, because I think this is a huge stumbling block with young Christians or people who are new to the faith who say, the church that I like, that I go to, that I receive fellowship in, believes this principle, and I don't believe that, or when I read it, I don't get that. Therefore, they're wrong, and I can't be with these people or run with these people or get fellowship with them, which I don't feel like that's true. I think there are core tenets that, you know, you obviously, you know, are fundamental to the Christian belief, but then there's peripheral, uh, is this what is going to make or break the Christian faith? Now, that in itself, that, that idea itself is controversial because the Catholic Church would say, if you don't believe in all, you believe in none. And I think, too, just to affirm, you know, this is, in terms of serious saints who have disagreed, like C.S. Lewis would not hold to a view of inerrancy that the EFCA holds to. And, and this is important because you talked about how it made you question your faith. And because, especially evangelicalism, we make such a big deal out of Scripture, out of the Word of God, out of its, uh, you know, its attestation to being truthful, if you are doubting those things, it could lead you to doubting your faith. And I think it's just important to name, like, there are saints, again, like C.S. Lewis, who don't hold to inerrancy the way we do, and yet is is a saint. And so I, I want to put that on the table as well. I think for me, probably the big question is definition of inerrancy. You went right to a place that I used to go to, which is, well, there are all these fact claims in the Bible. You know, 35 people did X, 
or is you know what's the random number of fish Jesus caught with Peter? It's like 137. I don't. I have no idea. I didn't say. It's, I don't it's know. Like Aren't you the pastor here, Joe? Yeah, there's I mean, one. Well, so is Tim. I got the Bible right here. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I was I was looking at a book. I wasn't listening. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Like like early Christian interpreters like try to make like significance out of that number. Totally. So 137 represents. And it, anyway, and it's like well if if there were a hundred let's say there were actually 138 fish caught and not 137. Does that undo the entire Christian faith? So that's kind of one one realm that I think is is really tough to like litigate because there's so many of those type of claims and the reality is we read those claims one through a like a journalistic like accurate to number framework whereas that just didn't exist with the Hebrew people. So you know one example being when uh, in the conquest narratives in Joshua they would constantly say things like and every man woman and child was killed. And we take that as like, you know, that's that's Walter Cronkite on the news saying, and every man, woman, and child. It's like, that's that's how we read that. But actually, that's not how Hebrew narrative works. It's probably an exaggeration because that's how Hebrew narrative works, is an exaggeration of a claim. And I, I got that from actually a book called The Skeleton in God's Closet by an author named Joshua Ryan Butler. I think that's his name. I'm not going to be Joseph. He doesn't know. Uh Sorry, anyway, I'm not that helpful this podcast, I guess. He's he's got he's got a book and like thirty pages. That's right. That's <laughs> true. I'm I'm looking at some documents. Wait a minute. <laughs> but I think that's important. And so I guess I'll throw out kind of my definition of the when I think about inerrancy, I don't think about those facts. Those like, was it 137 or 136? Not that those questions aren't important, but primarily what I think about with inerrancy is what God intends to communicate through his word, he will communicate and it will be inerrant. So what God intends to communicate through his word will never contain errors. Yeah, no, I think I completely agree with that. In my mind, I think that begins to kind of move over into that infallible idea, the the fact that nothing will prevent the revelation through the divine scripture. The problem becomes when certain churches or denominations begin to justify actions or beliefs based on scripture, which may be, you know, written in a cultural context like you're describing and that's uh, it's i think it becomes tough when i agree with you that inerrancy shouldn't be the sticking point but yet is made the sticking point because you're not allowed to you know contradict or believe or you know not agree and i'm not trying to run down the southern baptist my parents have wonderful faith they've done more good in their lifetime than i probably ever will you know 36 years in the mission field but things such as the International Mission Board, which is, you know, the uh, mission branch of the of the Southern Baptists, you have to sign the Baptist faith and message to remain on the field, you know, and to say, this is absolutely what I believe. And that's, you know, it's it's the kind of that idea that you have to accept this view of Scripture to remain in this tribe um, that I can find extremely dangerous. Yeah, and... The emphasis on inerrancy is one thing, but what it is like itself, I think where inerrancy becomes important is when you lose that doctrine, notwithstanding the good questions that, that you raise, and I think ultimately there's a number of tension points that, that I, don't, I don't know are, we have great answers for in terms of solving all of the tensions in the entire Bible. I think, I think anyone would say, you know, if you just run through every example, there's a really good explanation for you. I think there's, there's explanations for each that make sense. That's a tension that I don't think ever goes away. Where I think the battle line's important is a rejection of inerrancy often can come with it, a rejection of things God has clearly like revealed that can begin to enter in a low view of Scripture 
less around like were there 137 fish or 136 fish and more around well we just kind of know more today than what they knew back then and therefore that can't be inerrant because we just we figured out things that that apparently Jesus didn't figure out in the gospels or and that that's where that's probably more my my concern is more than than the the actual doctrine of inerrancy I think you're absolutely right. And this is one of the fears that I struggle with is because you take a look and you say, okay, well, uh, I don't necessarily believe that is trying to, you know, prove this point or they're saying that or, you know, we can take an extremely controversial topic, you know, women in leadership in the church. And you say, okay, well, I don't necessarily, because that was contextual and, and, you know, in my mind, it's this idea of you have this device and there's a bunch of wires and you know you can clip some wires and the thing will work completely fine, but you're not sure which wires you can't clip. And so you're terrified to clip any. And that's and that's the position you become is that you don't know enough about Scripture, enough about, um, you know, the overall implication, the cultural, the, the poetic devices. If you don't know that, it becomes almost impossible for you to discern these nuancy, you know, passages. And I don't have that. And that's honestly, Tim, that's one of the reasons that I love this church is because you are a biblical scholar, the way you preach. And that is, you know, that drew me to you is the idea that you can say, okay, you got to realize in this time period, this was going on. And when they say this, what they're, you know, what they're implying is this is a common poetic device that's used in Hebrew, you know, and that's, that's that knowledge that kind of lets you say, I can't touch this wire this wire some people cut some people don't we don't know if it causes a problem you know and that but then there's a whole bunch of wires that you just don't know i think i want to press into a couple of more distinctions too that i think would be helpful in terms of defining inerrancy which is that generally like the the efca and, and most people who affirm inerrancy is that the way that they would define it is that it's inerrant in the original manuscripts so in other words, the letter that Paul wrote, the original letter is inerrant. It, the, the truth that it affirms is inerrant. Now, the reason why that's significant is because it, it accounts for the fact that the Bible we have right now in our hands does contain hundreds and hundreds and now you know thousands of years of copying. What that means is that the Bible we have in our hands is not the original manuscripts. And so something like a number that doesn't make sense in the Old Testament, which is a ton, or variance in translations is accounted for. Like we, we wouldn't say, well, this, the, the English Bible I have right now, that I'm, I'm sure this is the original manuscript. The answer to that is no. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm confident. Um, that, that's kind of the, the modern interpretation of of what the Bible is now in its translations. But I, but I do think that's important because some of the conversations about inerrancy can conflate changes that happen in translation versus the original. And that's the problem is there's these layers of definition to the word inerrancy. Right, yeah. And there is a belief system that some people possess based on their understanding of that. And so, you know, like the classic story, I think I've told Tim this, Joe, but I had a professor in college because I went to Oklahoma Baptist University um, who read from 
according to Greek, from the New Testament. Yeah. And that's what he would read from. That's what he studied from. And he went and preached at a church in Oklahoma. And this lady came up to him after and said, I was just curious what translation of the Bible you were using. And he said, well, it's kind of my own translation. And she said, yeah, here we use King James. Yeah. And so just, yeah, just, just that idea that what I have in my hand is the very thing that God spoke to that person who wrote it down. And a lot of people believe that. No, then that's absolutely true. And I think that's why it's important, and, and just track with me here, to understand the difference between the metaphysical claim and an epistemic claim. All right, so epistemic relates to what we can know. Epistemology and metaphysics is what is real, what is true. And so uh, the claim of inerrancy is a metaphysical statement. It's that what is in the Bible is true because it is the word of God. We can get to that in a second of how inerrancy relates to inspiration of scripture. I think tracking that theological trail is important, but that is different than saying, I am a hundred percent certain that I know all the ways in which it's affirming what's true. And we have to have humility in that knowledge, but we also shouldn't confuse it. We shouldn't say, well, because because I'm not certain that it's asserting this truth, I shouldn't therefore conclude that there isn't inerrant truth in it. Does that make sense to confuse those categories? Do I need to provide an analogy? I feel like Matt's affirming something that's really important, which is the claim to inerrancy can quickly become a claim to what's inerrant is actually my interpretation of the Bible. And therefore, there's very little room for any sort of question, disagreement, space to play. So that's, you know, for you, the epistemic and I think that's really important. And Matt's naming something that is has made inerrancy a very even goes so far to say like a dangerous doctrine within the life of the church because it's not actually it's not about the metaphysical claim that everything God has said is true. It's actually churches have made it the epistemic claim what we are saying is true. I, I'm with Tim on that, and, I'm, and I think that's absolutely true. Is what I'm what I'm alluding to there. I think some of that goes back to I mean we had talked about you know, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 78, in 1978. And that was, you know, where they got, I think, 400 evangelical leaders at the time together to come out with this, this statement. And the whole purpose of that was they were concerned about this liberalization and, you know, kind of creep away from biblical truth that was occurring in regards to, to Scripture. And I think that movement, for all of its good intentions, really kind of changed the tide of this, what is meaning of inerrancy and what is divinely inspired mean when I open my Bible and take a look at it. And I think that that a lot of denominations and sects kind of really leaned into that statement as well as their revisions for the idea that this cannot be questioned, this cannot be challenged. What I hold in my hand is, you know, divine, you know, divine literature, free from error. I feel like it would be a good follow-up to that would be, how do you get from inspiration to inerrancy? I think this is the essential aspect to inerrancy. Inerrancy doesn't make sense if you don't view Scripture as God's Word, which we all are, are claiming we do. And so if, in fact, right, we believe in inspiration of Scripture, what, what, we're, what we're saying is that, is that ultimately this is God's Word, that He has worked through human hands, human minds, that He's cultivated through His providence, through His Holy Spirit, to construct the the Bible that that we have now, the individual letters, the stories, has been influenced and directed by the hand of God. So, I mean, the key text for that is Second Timothy three sixteen. Um, all words are are God breathed. 
And so if that is the case, then what that means is it has divine character to it. So God himself then is is someone who only tells truth, right? He's incapable of error, that that is our theology. And so descending from inspiration, if it in fact uh, bears the seal of God's communication to us, then it's more of a theological entailment or, or a logical entailment that if God cannot err and he has spoken to us, then therefore the word that we have that is his is without error. <laughs> we're all I mean I don't know if that was a mic drop moment but uh, I mean that, that that's where I was trying to say earlier and I, maybe to even go into an example that becomes a very explosive one so let's go to the beginning of Genesis we knew we were getting there I mean this is this is this is the thing which is what what is God saying in Genesis 1 and 2 and you know Matt spoke about the Chicago statement which came out of a, a long period of time where there was significant debate about science and the Bible and what got attached to inerrancy also then was a seven-day kind of literal creation to Genesis 1 and 2. And the question that we should, we should ask is, is that the truth God is intending to convey in Genesis 1 and 2? That Monday to Saturday, B.C., whatever, <laughs> uh, it was Genesis 1 verses 1 through 5 was day 1. You know, whatever that is, it was six literal days. Is that the truth God is intending to give? And I think most commentators throughout history, and they don't talk about that because they're not interested in that, that question. That question did not become interesting until Darwin and evolutionary theory and the church wanted to begin to push back on that. Prior to, to that, that was really not a, no one really cared about that interpretation. Well, it's definitely, in terms of the history of interpretation of Genesis, I mean, you have someone as early as Augustine, was that 4th century, did not read day as 24-hour day. Even in terms of just Jewish interpretation, uh, did not did not take, well, not all of them. They, there was a lot of debate of how to understand day, because in within Genesis, the term day is used differently. Now, there are some very intelligent people, I, I think, who do believe in literal six-day creation, so I don't want to throw that out the window. Um, but, I mean, from, like, as you said, even to Augustine, the church has not had a unified position on whether or not it was a 24-hour day. And to push even further, that's the example, so that the plants, plant life, is created before there is sun. So if you're, you know, if you're an anti-inerrantist person, that's a really powerful example. If you're someone who takes inerrancy the way the way I do, it's like, well, the, I don't think the point of Genesis one is to teach botany. Like, here's good. <laughs> is, did I get that right? Is that plant life? Is that? No, you're on it. Okay, I was. I'm looking. At, I'm looking at the doctor, and he's. He hey, I have a biology this. degree too. <laughs> so. Oh man. Uh, and so, if you read Genesis one as a botany textbook, I think you're going to have some trouble because I don't think when God spoke that narrative creation to um, his people. It was not to teach them how to grow plants. It was to teach them the order of the universe. I think the primary point of Genesis 1 and 2 ultimately is that only one God created, because in that day you had an assumption there were many gods. So only one God created, and there's an order to the universe. And you read through Genesis 1 and 2, and all of that makes sense in the Hebrew. So that's what God wanted to communicate. And I think that's, at least that you know that small snapshot of that text is an example of how inerrancy, in, I think in the right view, 
uh, comes out and is really helpful. In the wrong view, we try to pigeonhole something in. And again, like Joseph, I'm I'm not I'm not even trying to make a claim on six day literal creation. I'm just trying to say like I don't. When I read that, and I've read the Hebrew in that, I don't get the sense that like that's what God is trying to communicate to His people. He's trying to communicate other things through that text. And so, a proper definition of inerrancy is hopefully helpful on that front. But a wrong definition of inerrancy puts, I think, Matt and others in a position where it's like, well, if I don't affirm, a, and I, I have, I've had this conversation with multiple people, if I don't affirm a six-day little creation, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe inerrancy, you know, it's the dominoes fall, and it's like, no, 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 no. like, no, <laughs> that's not at all, that should not be the the progression. Well, and I thought it'd be helpful, so I, because you brought up the Chicago statement on inerrancy, if I had the opportunity, I, I would have signed that, signed that document. And, and so they have a statement, Article 12, on inerrancy, and it, and it relates to creation. And I'll tell you how I understand it and why I'm, I'm okay with it, um, if that's helpful. So this is the statement. They, they say what they affirm, and then they say what they deny. So it's, we affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. For me, that makes sense based on theology of God, who God is and inspiration of Scripture. Then they say, we deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. So now on face value, someone may hear that and think that they're saying if if science, you know, science, science says that the earth is, you know, how many millions or billions of years old? Um, and therefore, they're saying they're, they're rejecting that. I think they leave it open by saying, properly used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and flood. So they leave it open for you to assess and establish what is the teaching of Scripture on the creation and flood. And so what I'm with you, Tim, I hold a view of the creation account that affirms that God created all things, that nothing existed before God, but that it was written with other purposes in mind, primarily to uh, write in to show Yahweh's sovereignty over uh, other gods of the pagan world, and also to it was written in a mirrored way where it says, you know, everything was formless and void. So the first three days are giving form; days four through six is filling. And so all, all that to say, it's, it's a literary composition and not a scientific account, which the reality is, is no ancient Near East cosmology was concerned with a scientific account. So that's, I, I'd be curious to hear. Well, this is one of the major criticisms of the Chicago State. It is. It totally is. In an attempt to, you know, prove the inerrancy or justify the inerrancy of the Bible, they created a framework in which you can't you know, break loose of. It's this idea that this isn't important, and we all agree it's not important, but we're going to create a set of rules talking about how important it isn't, and we need to adhere to them, or else it's a problem. You know, and so it's this kind of contradictory, you know, it, it's, it's a literary device that was an oral tradition that was even wasn't written down for, you know, don't know the years, but a significant amount of years, and then, you know, translated multiple times and passed, in, but yet we acknowledge that. However, we feel the need to come out with a very rigid statement about what we believe about it, and that's, that's I think, one of the issues that I have is this 
this scramble to justify or defend inerrancy while on one hand and then on the other hand saying, but it really doesn't matter that much. You know, that it's, well, that's not what the Hebrew, it's a poetic device. It's this, you know, the, the framing and the filling and the, you know, the, and that's true. But then why are we so concerned with the inerrancy of it? That's the problem that's kind of, you know, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. And that's, and I think that's allowed. It's a complex issue. And I think complex issues don't have, you know, aren't binary. And, and I get that. Some of this goes back to, and I don't freely admit this for the listener as well as for you guys, is there is a lot of baggage I carry from my childhood about this. And so there are a lot of people who misuse this to push their own agenda, using this, you know, as a shield. And that's, you know, so there's anger and there's, there's hurt wrapped up in that too. And so really that's complex too, is to go back and try to figure out, you know, what is important, what's not. Yeah. I mean, I remember meeting with someone who was genuinely concerned that if she told me that she struggles to believe in a literal six-day creation, that we would ask them to leave our church. And that, like, I just, like, I didn't have a category for that. One thing I want to say is, like, if you started listening to this thinking, like, in 30 minutes, like, Tim and Joseph and Matt are going to all, we're going to solve it. We're not. I think this is an ongoing tension point. And that's even for me, what a, part of what makes inerrancy important for me is that when I get to those tensions in those surface level contradictions, you know, the apparent contradictions, however you want to frame that, that always drives me into deeper study, which always leads me to a deeper understanding of God and doesn't always resolve the surface tension or contradiction I started with. Like I, I may I may have a helpful frame of like, okay, I, here's why I still hold to inerrancy in light of that. But what I think ultimately makes inerrancy important is it makes it makes the scriptures something I have to wrestle through. And when I come to something that doesn't make sense, I dig deeper instead of checking out. And, and that, I think that's probably for me, what makes, what makes inerrancy important is God has revealed something that is true. And I don't know what it is yet because I'm human and my, my perspective is not full. And so what looks like a, a contradiction to me, there's something more here and I don't know what it is yet. I think that's why it's so important, especially as we're pressing into this class, talking things about charity and humility, that that whole metaphysics versus epistemology that's so important to not confuse the fact that there's an inerrant truth and I'm, I am certain and I'm the bearer of that iner- inerrant truth, um, that we have to have humility. And that's, you know, what was said, what was said, you know, what, whatever that person's experience was for you, Tim, you know, prior where there's that fear, you know, um, lacking the humility that, that we have full access to the truth of God, that, that our cognitive faculties have been been aired by sin and, and we have other limitations as well. And we have to keep humility as such a, a key a key part of the interpretive process. How we're handling scripture has to be uh, covered with humility.